This episode of Biscuits and Jam is presented by Boar's Head. Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. And in this episode, I'm talking to an artist who's known as something of an outlaw. Nikki Lane grew up in Greenville, South Carolina, and her wild streak started early, running around on four-wheelers and dirt bikes, and ultimately dropping out of high school to pursue a fashion career in L.A. But Nikki was always drawn back to her Southern roots, and now she spent 13 years in Nashville writing some terrific songs and bringing her outlaw spirit to the stage. We'll also talk about her friendship with Loretta Lynn and her new album, Denim and Diamonds. All that and more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Nikki Lane, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. It's nice to be here. Do you make me any biscuits? <laughs> Everybody asks that. I need to start doing that. <laughs> Nikki, we actually met at a Southern Living event in Nashville back in like 2013 or 14, and you were performing at this music series that we did out at Fontanelle. Fontanelle. You remember that? I'll, I'll never forget that. I passed out on stage. Do you remember? <laughs> I don't remember that. It was that. so hot. It was like the hottest day, and I had worn, because I was excited, this really beautiful wool embroidered blouse, and it was like a rodeo queen outfit. I was just sweating like a box in there, and I had to sit down <laughs> on the side and drink some probably sweet tea until <laughs> until I felt good enough to finish the show. But it was delicious. They had fed me a big old meal from the restaurant just before. And those are things you don't do in the heat on tour because you feel lightheaded. Well, I just remember a great show, a great set, and it's nice to see you again. It sure is nice to be here with you. So, Nikki, you grew up around Greenville, South Carolina, which is now this major culinary destination it's getting written up in places like the New York Times. Tell me a little bit about the Greenville that you knew as a kid. It's funny, right? Because the Michelin star is from our region, but we didn't have any deserving restaurants growing up. You know, I grew up, first of all, with a single mother. So a lot of chain restaurants was just the way that we got through a weekly schedule. She was a great cook. My grandmother was a great cook, but it was all Southern food. And I was quite picky. I was never you know, exposed to like sushi as a child. I actually ate sushi for the first time in California. And then my sister came back from the military and said, Greenville's got good sushi now. And I was like, no, I don't. But it does. It's it's amazing to, to watch how much it's grown. I think that when BMW came, I was still in high school. And I, I credit that a large part to the growth in our city because it brought so much revenue and jobs and people from cities. And, you know, when people from cities have to move someplace, they bring a lot of that city with them, which can can get bucked back in small southern towns, I'm sure. But it was really done in a tasteful way in Greenville. I complained about it for a long time. And then I went back and I was like, dang, it's pretty good now. <laughs> you know, I'm thankful for the southern roots because there is so much foundation in the delicious food that comes from just our grandparents and the Sunday church meal that we would have on Sunday evenings. But I'm very excited now that there's a focus on food. There was actually, I think, a Michelin food festival in Greenville this past year that I, I wanted to go and like judge or something just to see what else come to town since I left. I'm sure they'd love to have you come back and play. 
when I do, it's really a good time. And my only complaint normally is as it's gotten a little bit bigger, they send me offers to sit down theaters for a higher ticket price. And I go, well, you ain't going to get all my family friends out to that thing. You know, <laughs> so it's figuring out how to grow and, and still welcome all the people that, you know, I would never want them to pay $50 ticket to go see me play, even though that'll become the normal everywhere else someday. You need more like a free show out on the lawn or something. That's right. So I just have to play two shows is what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nikki, you've mentioned that you grew up in an apartment complex. What was life like for you on, say, a typical weekend? What I learned when I moved to California was that I hadn't been inside in a long time. We grew up outside, you know, kind of entertained from sunup to sundown. I mean, I slept in until about 930, even as a young child. I loved a little sleep in and then some cartoons and fruity pebbles. There's still some in the living room or in the kitchen right now. I've never grown out of them. But um, I think that I grew up, you know, just getting a little wild. My dad would give us horses and four-wheelers and go-karts and we were allowed to knock over trees with the heavy machinery as long as we like were careful, you know. So we grew up in the country when we were with him. And then my mom had moved to town right on the edge of the city park. So on the other side of that was the church and the elementary school. So I grew up as like a latchkey kid coming home. And the second you could get up and get outside, we did. And so my granddad was a photographer. I carried around little rolls of 110 film and took pictures of things and made up murder stories in the woods when we found a pile that somebody had thrown away of trash, you know, just being curious and uh, running around. And it never occurred to me to play music. I did sing in church, you know, it never occurred to me to like live in a city, I think. But uh, I had too inquisitive of a mind to stay put. So I think I would just have been, you know, hanging out in the wild until my mom drug me inside. (laughs) Tell me about the church. I I believe I've read that you grew up Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, were you going to church regularly on Sundays or was it more sporadic? You know, I think I was seeking community even as a young kid. I think my mom was First Baptist the way she was raised. So then we were First Baptist. And, you know, I look back and obviously the older you get, you're, you might shift your perspective a little bit, but it was definitely notable to be like the child of a single mother in um, a church that is kind of more affluent. And so I just remember the first time someone complimented something I wore because as a child, you know, in that environment, unless you're wearing the exact brand and type, you know, I was an outcast even at the church, even though girls might have been nice to me because their mom told them to. It it was a church where you kind of needed to be the same. So I saw authenticity and I think that's how I got into vintage and things like that. But I really leaned on religion as a child. I, I was at church every Wednesday night and every Sunday morning and I loved exploring what what made me I guess more inquisitive about multiple religions was as I started going to other friends' vacation Bible school, which I think my mom as a single mother was like, you want to go to every single one of these? Great. You know what I mean? But I was learning the same things over and over, but experiencing the differences in like a Catholic churches, the way that they celebrated their religion. And then when I moved to New York and LA beyond South Carolina, becoming friends with women that were Mormon or devout Judaism, it's just exploration of how many people were living really kind, generous, wonderful lives, but not under the rules that I had specifically read. So religions made me more open-minded also, you know, in learning that it's a baseline for being good. But as a child, I was just following kind of that community. You mentioned your grandfather 
kind of pushing you when it came to music. Was this on your mom's side? Yeah, my mom's dad, Cecil Hare, I wrote about him in Good Enough, my song. He hung the moon for all of us girls. It was like a house full of girls. He had two daughters. Mom had two daughters and my grandmother. My grandmother, my nanny, she never drove. She was she was raised before there was power, she'd say, you know, and her biscuit was mean, man. I never figured it out because a pinch could have maybe been a tablespoon. That was always the problem in directions from nanny. But he was kind of like my hero. Like I said, you know, when my dad was kind of falling short, like during the divorce, he just stepped right up and he just always had our back. And he was really interested in all the gospel quartets. And so we would go out. There was this little place where you could go fish, catch and release on a little pond and all these gospel quartets would come out. So we'd go out there and we'd fish and he'd freeze a mason jar full of water and that'd be your jug of water all day as it melted. And then you go see the gospel quartet. And he was real obsessed with mountain music. At one point, he had a surgery and he had a syndrome when you wake up where they don't do super well. I think it's called sundowner syndrome. And he wasn't doing very good. And I, I showed up with the tape player and put in all the dulcimer cassettes for him. And a couple of days later, he was like, I could hear the music. I really started to learn just music is a, is a connection between people and is also what we lean on like so heavily. He didn't know how to verbalize that, but he just had that, you know. And so I think he just wanted me to lean into something. So if I liked it, he would work extra hard to get me there to do it, you know, and be the one standing there watching. I got married when I was younger, and I swear I got married so that Papa could see me get married because he was getting pretty old. I didn't keep the husband, but but Papa got to be there, and that's all that mattered. (laughs) (laughs) Now, was his wife really the cook in the family? Um, You mentioned her biscuits. Yeah, I'd say that my grandmother was definitely the cook. I never saw her sit down at the table. It's basically the short end of the stick. She'd leave that oven on about all morning long. She'd make the biscuits, and then she'd leave them in there on warm. And she'd put some sugar on them and put a couple little pieces in there for me to have a little sugar biscuit. But she would just kind of keep serving up little pieces of potato or chicken as it was done. And uh, I always got a kick out of it, and now I realize I do that. I, I cook for people to show them my love. And I barely spend any time with them once they're at the house, other than in the kitchen, shooing them around. And I just caught it from her honest, you know, it's the love language of hosting. And uh, I take most of my bites before we sit down. So uh, I feel I feel quite full by the time it's time to eat. But I do take a, a great honor in being able to serve people at a table the way I think she did for us. So, Nikki, what about the holidays? Was that a big deal in your family? You mentioned the uh, the Christmas tree. It was a big deal, but it was a small family. And I think because we didn't have first cousins and stuff, it became really important to me when I moved away to encourage my mom because we were only about six people as we were four and three, you know, as the family got smaller, as my grandparents passed away, I started kind of encouraging my family to come up to us because while we had great traditions, we were kind of limited in that palette. And so I started coming home from tour, you know, I get home on December 17th or something. I was like, there is no way I can run down there. So sometimes my mom comes up now, or sometimes they just will let me off the hook on that, and we'll do a big holiday dinner elsewhere. But I do something now called Christmas fits, because I think where I struggled with having a small family is after we were done with our kind of small Christmas and Thanksgiving, I'd run off to meet other kids who didn't have two parents or something. And we'd sit at like the Dunkin' Donuts, which is probably the only thing open on Christmas. You know what I mean? At the time, we'd hide in the one place that was open in Simpsonville, South Carolina, and all hang out together. And so as I got older, I was like, yeah, I want to be with my family, but I don't need 
the obligatory time of being with them on Christmas. My mom's good with that. She'll come right out on tour with me. She'll sing on stage on December 5th. We'll spoil each other for the weekend. And then she'll leave me alone until January 15th because she don't want worn out Nikki. But providing a home and a space for people who maybe don't want to go home for their holidays or just can't get back has become my way of upholding what my family was known for, which was just creating a warm space with good food. Oh, that's great. What a beautiful thing. Nikki, I also had read that you were into motocross as a kid and that you kind of came from a motocross family. How was that a part of your life? My dad raced motocross up until about the time my mom got pregnant. They were living in California and came home for some family stuff and then ended up staying back. But my dad had raced pro for a long time. So the number one rule growing up was no boys with motorcycles, vans, I'm looking at the wall right now, motorcycles, vans, <laughs> like on my art on the wall at my house. You know, of course, that's what I loved. And so my first boyfriend in high school coincidentally rode motocross, you know, and he was riding professionally. And so I joke, growing up Southern, just so inquisitive about the world, the last thing I wanted to do was be Southern and listen to country music. I'd listen to 90s country on the radio growing up, but once I was in my teens, I was on MTV, just like trying to get out of here. I was like destined to hang out with guys with motorcycles and vans, get myself a boyfriend. He ends up taking me up to Loretta Lynn's for the nationals. So my early Loretta Lynn days were not because of her country music. I was familiar with the hits, of course, but she was the cool lady that let us go up and have a party on her, you know, a dirt bike party on her property. And I just think that being outdoors, when I got to LA and I realized I hadn't seen any cool movies, I felt real Southern and like out of touch. But, you know, I watched all those movies just fine in my apartment once I got there. You know what I mean? I'm so grateful for the fact that I spent such a, a large part of my youth learning to do things. Like I teach every employee how to use a power drill and hang something way too heavy on a wall and drive a five speed and learn how to back up a trailer. Because I think those are key parts of just being a human, you know, uh, well beyond whether or not you have to do that for touring. And I'm just grateful I learned all those things. Well, I've seen pictures of you on a motorcycle. So I'm guessing you know how to ride one. Yeah, I have a Sportster right now and a little dirt bike that I'll take out to Loretta's when I play there this summer just to rip around like a pit bike, a 80 I know how to ride them. I'm scared of them in a good way. I have a lot of friends that aren't around anymore because of motorcycles. That was something I was well aware of. It's not really us. It's the other people kind of thing. So I, I get very few miles on my bike every year. I just ride up and down a little loop up to this lake 20 miles away back and forth. But it's fun to like feel the wind on you like that and just kind of space out, you know, uh, in that environment and then just get right back here. I got the dirt bike during the pandemic because I said, I can finally afford to break my arm. I've been paying for too many people for too long. <laughs> yeah, don't break that strumming hand of yours. I've got a huge scar on my arm where my dad gave me a gas-powered four-wheeler at four. I turned four in October, and for Christmas, I got a gas-powered four-wheeler, and it had a little governor on it. And my cousin taught me how to take it off, and I was, like, ripping down the road at four. They found me in the field, like run over. I'd run myself over, uh, flip the thing in a ditch. <laughs> oh, Lord. I was all squashed up. But Dr. Knight, my mom was like, a knight came. But Dr. Knight, he was a surgeon. He had flown in to do a Clemson football player's knee. And he agreed to take my arm on one night in December. I don't know. I well, survived so You it. really started early. I mean, you were 
off to the races. Yeah, my dad said he taught me how to drive heavy equipment at two, but we were definitely sitting on the heavy equipment at two. We were allowed to do whatever. And then I was in a beauty pageant because my best friend was, she was a model. So she did all the beauty pageants and then I'd use her dress and do it the next year, kid sister style. And I went for my beauty pageant pre-walk and I walked across and the lady training us to like win the judges over. She said, are you going to do something about that? And I was like, what? And she was like, the scar on your arm. And I'd never even seen this thing. I was like, what are you talking about? No, you got to, you can do something about this. <laughs> I thought this was cool. I thought this I was going to win the beauty pageant because I'm still pretty, even though I got a big old hole in my arm. That's a badge of honor, right? <laughs> Maybe not in a beauty pageant in the '90s in South Carolina, but it is now as a country singer. That's for sure. After the break, I'll talk more with Nikki Lane about her career since moving to Nashville, her experience with Loretta Lynn and her latest album, Denim and Diamonds. This episode of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living is presented by Boar's Head. Introducing Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Glazed Chicken, a new classic flavor available only from Boar's Head that brings the celebrated traditions, signature flavors, and iconic taste of sweet honey barbecue to your local deli. Inspired by famous barbecue joints and the aficionados who know the reward is worth the wait, comes an authentic experience that can only be from Boar's Head. Made with premium ingredients, this slow-roasted chicken is delightfully sweet with notes of honey and perfectly balanced with savory hints of hickory smoke. Honey drizzled and barbecue sizzled. Ask for freshly sliced Sweet Bee's Honey Barbecue Chicken during your next visit to the deli counter. Boar's Head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with the outlaw country artist, Nikki Lane. Well, so Nikki, I mean, you were clearly ready to get on with your career, get out of Dodge. You dropped out of high school. How did that dream of being independent and out on your own, kind of measure up with the reality? I learned kind of like survival first. I had jobs really young, but I think it hit hard. You know, the first six months were really hard. My other granddad, he was very tough. We weren't allowed to like cry around him. He was very rough on the edges. He was an asphalt paver, my dad's dad. And I accredit him to my success because the bar that I worked at, they made a football scoreboard of like what day I'd come home. You know, they like bet on it. They were just messing with me. But I was like, thank God they made that sign. And thank God my granddad doesn't think I'm going to make it because I'm going to win. It just motivated me to be fine because, you know, we already grown up kind of like not having, it's like you can get by with less than you think. So the jobs and the like surviving wasn't that hard, but getting the spirit, especially to become a creative it took me three years in L.A. to, like, really have my footing. And then I moved to New York almost right away. So I was I was still jumping hurdles for fun, which I think I do now in different ways. But I think it exceeded expectations in terms of where I don't know what I thought I was going to do. I just knew that I was going to keep jumping. I was thinking about the first time I got food poisoning away from my mom in California. And I called her and I said, I won't be here in the morning. So, and she's like, you can't say that. And I'm like, I never thought about what being sick without your mama would be like, you know, (laughs) for real. And those little moments, you know, we all experience them where we're like, oh, okay, this is what adulthood is. 
So when did you move to Nashville? 13 years ago, I moved here from New York. I made a record. So I was at the end of trying to have a real job, starting to run out of money in New York. And I was like, if I'm going to really be a country singer, I just got my first deal. I was like, I should probably move to Tennessee. And we just moved down here. And I lived in the first house I rented for 10 years. And then I bought this house that I live in now three years ago. It was the first time I'd ever sat still. As soon as I left South Carolina, 18, I just was running. I changed leases every year. I was like, now I need a bedroom. Now I need a closet. Just doing that hurdle game. And, but when I got here, I knew that I needed to at least make this a foundation, especially with all of the touring. If I didn't have a home, I would have quit. Yeah. So you didn't really learn to play guitar until you'd been performing for a while. How did learning guitar really change you as a musician? <laughs> to be funny, it, like it gave me a chance to earn all of my own songwriting in that way that it was like I was leaning on people and I still do that with other jobs, but it's like I was leaning on people so that I could learn. I wrote songs out of spite about a boyfriend. I got a record deal. I sang them to people and they played them. And now we had gotten that far. Why did I need to learn how to play guitar? I actually went to meet George DeCoulias. My ex-husband was like, you know, you love George DeCoulias. And I was like, who? He's like, well, that's who makes that Jayhawks record you're listening to. And that's who makes that Tom Petty record. And I went, it is? Well, I'm going to call him. And he's like, oh, no. He's like, he's big time. And so I told my label, and they were like, well, we manage him. We'll call him. And so George let me come over to his house. I come over to his house. I have blonde hair, like I've experimenting with right now again in my life. And I went over there with my blonde hair, and I sat down. He gave me a guitar. It was a Martin, and it said, one of two made for Tom Petty. And he said, play me a song. And I went, like, it was awful. And he was like, oh, you're terrible. And I was like, I know. And he was like, why? And I was like, well, who cares? And he was like, what are you going to do when you go to radio and you can't play your own song? And I was like, you think they're going to play me on the radio? (laughs) (laughs) So it opened up my ability to take more control of the music I was making. But I'll tell you, I'm naturally good at a lot of things and I'm not naturally good at guitar. So I'm going to play a solo acoustic show at the Soho house tomorrow. And I'm allowed to invite 30 people that are not members. And you know, all everyone I invited, it was like, ooh, we're going there. So now we're all going. And I realized all my coolest friends are going to come watch me play by myself. I've tricked myself into something I'm terrified to do. And I think that there's something good about that too, because I'm like, I'm not going to compare myself to Willie Nelson, but I have to segue to him. Where when I watch him play solos live, he messes up sometimes. Do you know what I mean? He like, he misses a little thing. He jumps around kind of awkwardly back to the other thing. And I'm like, he is the best. (laughs) And just to be clear, he's way better than me, but there's like, there's beauty in imperfection, you know? And so I do embrace that I'm still not that good at guitar and I don't even want to be because if I were good at it, I'd be really good at it. It's like, I'm just going to focus on being good at these other 11 things that have got me very busy and hope that you guys don't notice that I'm I call myself Clangity Lane. Well, Nikki, you moved to Nashville, and I guess you'd been there for a while, but I came across this CBS segment that you did with Loretta Lynn singing Don't Come Home a Drinkin'. And I know you got to know her a bit. What did that relationship mean to you? I mean, she's like everyone's grandma in that way of like almost every woman that's ever sang in anywhere close to our genre of music is thankful for her and credits her as like part of our path. Like I said, you know, finding out about her from like a little bit of a different angle, there was just a huge 
nostalgia in her legacy for me or her brand as like a human. And so my first record has never come out. It's called No Room for Cowboys. It was just 10 recordings we did here in Nashville, which got me the Walk of Shame record deal. But every record that I made, the way that I tested it was by driving it to and from her property. It's an hour and 10 minutes each way. So I just listen to it there, eat at the meet and three, take a picture on the porch, and then drive back to the house and listen to it again. And it became like a little bit of a tradition for me. That CBS session was actually a big win for my manager at the time, Lee Foster, who had his Electric Lady Studios. He was working on a different segment and it just became like, this is how I'm going to bridge the gap with you, Loretta. There's the CBS thing. And I was so excited because, you know, I know that it takes a lot of connections to make things work, but I really only want to do things that are really true and organic to me. A lot of people you're never going to see me stand on stage with because it wasn't my dream. You know what I mean? But all of a sudden, Lee made this big thing happen. And Patsy and Taylor Lynn, the entire family down there is just very open and super encouraging of women, but also of like Southern grassroots festivals and community. They used all of the resources that they scrapped together for that property early on to just keep investing and, and build a place that just houses so many big, fun, festive events. And so... She just was my top, top, top. That day was when I think I got to become her friend. I had gotten to open up for a little bit, and she was just always treating me like we already knew each other. And I figure, like, well, I do that. I, like, pretend to know people sometimes or at least remember at South By. I can't tell what city everybody's actually from. But we connected that day in the bathroom getting ready, and she said on that session, you know, like, there are just some people that you feel like you've known for a very long time. And I was like, Thank God she said it because like, you know, you feel that way. But I just felt like she was just being polite to me, but she treated me like an equal in that way. And those kind of things, even though that gives me like imposter syndrome or something, but it just was such an honor to sit right beside her and uh, and be old friends. It was funny because at that time, her daughter said, have you been emailing us for a long time? Because I had been emailing since I moved to Nashville because I dream of having a big festival out there one day. I know that Bonnaroo is big, too big now for my taste, but I've always said, let's have a festival out there at her property. And it'll probably still be on my bucket list because I think she wrote some of the best. It's like Dolly Parton with also the work she does with reading for the youth and vaccine donation and stuff. It's great. There are lots of good singers that write good songs, but what did you do with it all? And uh, watching Loretta, the way she built a family and a life and a legacy and a property that we can all enjoy, the fruits of her labor, kind of no admission. I think she's the baddest one that ever ever happened. Well, what a magic person, and I can see why y'all would have a connection. I also think she would be really proud of your new album, which is called Denim and Diamonds, It's so great. I mean, it's a wonderful collection of songs. But, you know, like Loretta, it also sounds like they were written by someone who's been through some stuff. There's one song on there called Born Tough, and it talks about being born tough, torn up, hardened by time. Yeah. (laughs) Are those all things that you were feeling when you wrote that? I wrote that pretty much crying in a bathroom in Germany, not from personal problems at that time, but just fatigue. You take on so much in any job. You know, I I look at people that have newly had children or new careers or even taken off to college by yourself, I'm sure is crazy. People keep taking on so much. And I think about the way I was raised and there is no reward without the hard work. It wouldn't feel good. I'm very good at turning things around and writing about divorce in a way that's real smart aleck. I was born to, torn up, not in my time. 
But there was this moment for me with this record. The pandemic time period was sobering for so many people. All of a sudden, you couldn't go anywhere. And like, I was so grateful I had four jobs because two of them still worked. But lots of people were going through a lot. And I think it just opened up a space in the recording environment where I was just like, damn, I'm going to show you some of this stuff. It just like kept coming. So there was stuff like First High and Denim and Diamonds. I had bought the LLC one night too late. And I knew I was going to have a nightclub called Denim and Diamonds, so I probably should get a record called Denim and Diamonds, so I should write a song called Denim and Diamonds. <laughs> Those things were shoe-ins, but other things were things that I just was like, well, now I think I'm being reflective. I think I should talk about my youth a little bit more. And, oh, no, well, if we're being honest, here's Faded. I've been hiding this one for 10 years from all of you. It was a different type of recording process for me. You know, the first record that you make is probably your best shot in the sense that it's never like that again. I didn't even know how to play guitar back then. So that one you've never even heard, but I really am in awe and uh, respect people. Like when Tyler Childers came out with his first record, I was like, Ooh, that's it. And he had been doing stuff for a long time. He was a well-formed artist. But by the time we heard that first body of work and Sierra Farrell, who's my favorite, but long time coming is a perfect record name. I was like, Oh my God. You know, it's like somebody that had built up this incredible body of work. And every record past that, we will have to do it in between tours, in between holidays. It just will never be the same after you get the ball rolling. And so this was my way of kind of taking it back into that headspace. It was very new for me. And uh, I told Josh when we were finished, and who knows, based on those hurdles I keep talking about, if I'll let it ever be. But I was like, I don't know how many more records I'll make, but this one's the one that sounds like me. All the other ones, I love all of them, but they're me figuring out who I am through other people. Josh really like offered up the paintbrushes and is the most dominant of all of them, but was the most like, you tell me, do you, you know, like kind of where we're going kind of vibe. And I'm like, hmm, I think this is a real Nikki Lane record more than ever before. That is for sure. Well, one of the biggest hits on this album is called First High. And I just love the song and it talks about trying to, kind of recapture the thrill of being young. What were you trying to tap into with that song? My cat got ran over here at the house oh. and it was like, a, I didn't want to go. I called the songwriter, Gabe Simon, who I wrote a bunch of the songs on this record with. I said, I can't come over there. And he was like, well, maybe it'll be good for something. And I was like, it ain't going to be good for nothing. And I said, I'm going to go get in the bathtub and I'll just think about it. If I can get as high as I did the first time, I'll come over. And I lay in the bathtub and I was like, just thinking about the stupid thing I had said. And I started like messing around with that. And I said, make me a Cheryl Crow riff is what I texted him. Thanks, Cheryl. It's not really, but you know what I mean? Got out of the tub and I drove over there and I was riled up and we probably had that song in two hours. But he was right. It was just somebody had sucker punched me that morning and I should have laid in the bed and pouted like a little baby because that's how I felt. But I was like, all right got to trust this guy. I don't like for bad things to happen, but if they do, I will lock myself in this room for 30 minutes with the guitar because a lot of good comes out of when you drop your guard like that. Mm. Well, you you talk about going 100 miles an hour with no headlights, and now I'm just going to think of you on that little four-wheeler at four years old burning up the road. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and everything's a dramatization, but I didn't go 100, but I did drive uh, quite a few miles one night on a moonless night in California with no headlights. I said the cops wouldn't be able to see us. But, you know, out there in the middle of nowhere, pitch black darkness, you could see a lot. Normally, you turn off the headlights, and that's when you got to pull over. <laughs> Well, it makes for a great line in the song, that's for sure. Well, Nikki, so you're about to hit the road with Chris Stapleton this spring. What does his songwriting mean to you? Man, watching him as a songwriter, but again, as a legacy, as a, a family man and a, a partner, the way he treats his band, it's kind of the pillar of what we could look forward to in the Americana genre. He sits right there in the middle of that one, and it's just big enough. You know, sometimes you can think you have to bridge out to do enough but if you could live like a lifestyle like he does, it's incredible. His songwriting is very honest and vulnerable. I mean, you just look at how many people relate with it and you see how simple it can be to connect with all of those people every night. But I think so much in the earnest attitude from him and his wife on stage, it just makes them one of the most captivating pairs of all time. And so going out on tour with them, like they're very generous people. They treat us like we're in the band, the stage hands. The sound guy, they're all like, what do you need? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I've never had anyone ask me that. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> it just creates an environment that you really strive to be on. And I, and I asked Morgan, I was like, please give me some more next year. Cause we always try to get a couple just to kind of be in that environment because there's a big gap in between how many tickets I sell and how many tickets they sell. But it feels quite natural up on those big stages. I got to open up for them at, I think the Iowa State Fair and it's hands down the most people I've ever ever, ever played to. It was such a big show for them. I got on the Ferris wheel and I saw it from the distance and there was this giant blue screen, not like a jumbotron, but like a huge one for this overflow pit. And they were in the overflow pit when we opened, but I thought they were watching like rodeo or something because they were yelling over to the left of me. And I was like, how annoying to be playing to these people. And they're just looking over there. But they were looking at me on a big old jumbotron. <laughs> so, so I just love to see somebody do that well, but then to be so good about sharing their light. I think that's kind of the thing you can aspire to the most. Well, Nikki, I just have one more question for you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? I think being Southern has taught me such a love language for being able to try to relate to the different people around me, being open-minded to like I said, unique experiences that can come from a very simple place and uh, finding ways to share all that connectivity between those people makes me want to get out of being Southern, but makes me always remember back that my roots come from a place of planting seeds and harvesting and how much that can do for even just one life. Well, Nikki Lane, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Nikki Lane. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. 
You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Our theme song is by Sean Watkins of Nickel Creek. I hope you'll join us next week for my interview with the amazing Hoda Kotb, whom you probably know as one of the anchors of the Today Show and who absolutely loves New Orleans. We'll see you then.